0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We have Matthew's account of the life of Jesus Christ, Mark, Luke, and John. And I very much enjoy the Gospel of Luke. Of course, all the Gospels, but this one in particular may be my favorite among the four. And one. I really like about the Gospel of Luke is its repeated emphasis, the key theme running throughout the letter, well not the letter, throughout the book, of spiritual humility. And so I'd like you to turn in your Bibles first this morning to Luke chapter 4. We'll be getting to the parable of the lost sheep momentarily, but for now I want to direct your attention to Luke chapter 4, the beginning of Jesus' ministry after he is baptized in the Jordan after he is tempted in the wilderness. Then he comes and begins his ministry in the power of the Spirit in Galilee of the Gentiles. Of course, uh, the Jewish people living there in Galilee, but it was far from Jerusalem, the northern part of Israel. And there, Jesus had grown up. And he came to Nazareth, his hometown and verse 16 where he had been brought up and as was his custom jesus went to the synagogue on the sabbath day in luke chapter 4 verse 16 and he went up to the synagogue and he stood up and read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice who Jesus Christ was sent to with good news. He was sent to the poor. He was sent to the captives. He was sent to the blind. He was sent to the oppressed. And until you come to see yourself as poor and oppressed and captive and blind, well then the good news of the gospel is just going to bounce right off of you and you're going to go on your merry way thinking that you don't need it. But for those who have spiritual insight, for those who have the humility of mind to recognize our own spiritual poverty, our own spiritual oppression, our own captivity... And our own spiritual blindness, we are the ones, the humble, who are able to receive the good news of Jesus Christ with gladness. This theme here in Luke chapter 4, it's not the first time this idea has appeared in the gospel, and it's not the last. But I thought it was a good place for us to start this morning. Turn over also to Luke chapter 5. I want to pick up the story here in verse 27. So after healing the paralytic in the previous section, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The message of Jesus Christ was a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet for a large number of people, around us in the world today, as it was back then, many people feel no need for repentance. If you go and talk to a lot of people and you ask them how they're doing and how they're living their life, they're going to say, well, I'm a good person. I'm doing things the right way. I've made good choices in my life and I'm having good consequences from those choices. And when somebody looks at their life and they say, well, I'm a good person who's made good choices and I'm living life the way that God wants me to live life, well, then there's no need for repentance. And they think, well, I'm doing it. Maybe you were raised in a Christian family. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home and you haven't made a lot of mistakes in your life. You haven't done some of the things that people do that bring ruin to their life. You're not in jail. You're not filled with guilt and anxiety and depression because of the immoral choices that you've made. You're not lonely because of all the broken relationships that you've destroyed with foolish sin. You're not on drugs or drinking yourself to forget the things that you have done. Maybe you are a good person, relatively speaking, in the eyes of man. You've made right choices and you're living a a blessed life. But the Bible makes it clear. That there are none righteous. There are none who do good. But that all have turned aside. That together we have become worthless. And that we all fall short of the glory of God. So there's this spiritual humility that the Word of God brings to the heart of those who think themselves to be righteous. Because they've compared themselves with others, and comparatively speaking, they've done well. And the Gospel of Luke comes in and shatters that self-righteousness and it preaches good news to all who are willing to confess before God, I have messed up, I have sinned, I have ruined myself, even if not in the eyes of men, in the eyes of God. And so we come to Luke chapter 15 this morning. I'd like to share with you the parable of the lost sheep. As well as the parable of the lost coin. And finally, of course, the parable of the prodigal son. And our title this morning, which we don't have up here, but you can jot down, is The Joy of Finding the Lost. It's there in your bulletins. The Joy of Finding. Can you think about a time in your life where you lost something? I'm sure that we have many such memories. I myself have lost a good number of things over the years. Just recently, I was on a short getaway with my family, and as we were loading up the van, my wallet dropped out on the ground, and I didn't notice. And so we went on our way, and we made our first stop, and I looked around for my wallet, and it wasn't where I thought I would normally put it, and we're going through the van looking for it, and I thought, well, it it must be back at the house, the bed and breakfast, So we go back to the bed and breakfast, and we're searching all over the house, and the cleaning lady is there, and we're asking her, and we just can't find it. And I told the kids, you better help me look, because we're not leaving until we find my wallet. (laughs) And so finally, I look underneath the cleaning lady's car, and underneath the car, that's where it was. It had fallen out while I was loading the car onto the driveway, and we recovered it. And I had great joy in recovering what had been lost. And so, if I hadn't lost it, I wouldn't have had the joy of finding it. So if you're a forgetful person that loses things often, at least take comfort in the fact that sometimes you get the joy of finding what you've lost. Maybe you get to find things that you've lost every day. But there is an appreciation for regaining what we think we have lost. And that's what is at the heart of all three of these parables. That this unique contribution to the gospel record that we have in Luke is not recorded. These parables are not in the other gospels. But they're here. and They're here because they fit so well with Luke's theme, with Luke's overarching theme of spiritual humility. And that God has come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So let's take a look at the first one here in Luke chapter 15. Follow along in your Bibles as I read the opening verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, when you think about the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they don't correspond exactly with the sinners of our time, of sinners of our day. But We have in our society also those that we look at and we think, these are the people who just made all the wrong choices, they messed everything up, and now they're paying the consequences for being foolish, for being sinners. And they rebelled against their parents, they got involved with fornication, they killed their own babies in their wombs, they broke the law, they lost their job, they dropped out of school, they just made all the wrong choices, and now their life is ruined. And they're not going to be able to get it back on track because it's too late. And there's a a lot of people that look at folks that way. But Jesus Christ did not look at people that way. Jesus Christ did not look at someone who had made all the wrong choices in his life and say, well, too bad for you. It's over. You missed it. Now Jesus Christ came to redeem. Jesus Christ came to save. That there is a Redeemer. There is a Savior. There is someone who can take a ruined life and make something amazing and awesome out of it. And that story has been told and repeated time and time again ever since Jesus Christ died for sins and rose again. The story of redemption after redemption. Now maybe your testimony is not that fabulous. It's not the type of testimony that you were in the rock band doing drugs and and you had your come to Jesus moment. Maybe you were raised a Christian. Maybe you prayed the prayer to receive Christ as a young person and and you've always walked with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. That is also an amazing story of God's grace because the person who is innocent, humanly speaking, is just as much in need of being born again as the person who is not innocent as the world looks at it. And so here, Jesus Christ in compassion and love for the Pharisees and the scribes, tells them these parables. Notice, these parables are spoken to the ones who are grumbling, the ones who are upset with Jesus Christ for coming and spending time with the sinners. And as much as these parables are an encouragement to the sinners, these parables are an opportunity for the self-righteous to humble themselves and to recognize that they also are in need of God's grace. And so we'll see that as we go throughout. Let's look at the first parable here. As Jesus responds to the grumbling that those who are morally upstanding in society have with a rabbi, a pastor, so to speak, if we're going to update it to our time, is spending time with the tax collectors and the sinners. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. It's good for us to spend some time listening to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege that is to be able to sit here in our comfortable room in Firth in the early part of the 21st century and to be able to listen as if we were there to the words of the Word of God in the flesh, the perfect man the teacher sent from God to lead us into all the truth. And so as we listen to the words of Jesus Christ this morning, listen for his heart, listen for what he is communicating and why. Now, he speaks to them in this parable, talking about the lost sheep. And here, the parable singles out the importance of the lost sheep. That there are the 99 who are doing just fine, but there's the one who is in danger. And that danger is on the heart of the shepherd. He cares for each one of his sheep. So while the 99 are not in danger in the open country, they don't need him right now. The one that does need him, that's where he's going. And he searches for it, notice, until he finds it. Just like I told my kids, we're not leaving until I find my wallet. So this shepherd says, I'm not going home until I find this sheep. He's not just going to look for a little while and say, oh well, I gave it my best shot. That doesn't really matter. No. It matters to him, and he's not going to give up. And so he searches until he finds it. And when he has found it, he's not scolding the sheep on his way home. He's not grumbling, I can't believe I had to spend all day looking for this stupid sheep. Why did you wander off? No, that's not his attitude. The attitude here of God in searching for the lost sheep is he searches until he finds it, and when he finds it, he comes home rejoicing. He got it on his shoulders, and he's singing songs of praise. And when he comes home, he doesn't want to just be the only one rejoicing. He wants to share his joy, and so he calls his friends together, his neighbors, and he he calls them to rejoice with him, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so Jesus here is inviting the Pharisees, the scribes, the morally upstanding people in Israel to enter into the joy of redemption. He's saying, I'm excited about sinners and tax collectors coming to God, and I want you to share in that excitement. I want you to rejoice with me. So Jesus is not scolding the Pharisees with these parables. No, this is an invitation. This is an open hand to come and rejoice with him. He's trying to open their minds to see what's really going on here. He's being a teacher for his enemies. What a gracious Lord we have. Now, the second parable here in verses 8 through 10, very similar, the same idea. He repeats it three times here. The third one, the longest for emphasis. But notice the parable of the lost coin as well. Read it along with me. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? See, what belongs to us, we don't want to lose. We are loss-averse. And we will work harder to gain what is ours that we've lost than to gain something that isn't ours that we could work hard and gain. Would you spend all day looking for a silver coin if it wasn't yours? No, probably not. But it's yours, and you don't want to lose anything that's yours. And that's the way it is with us being created in the image of God. We were created to belong to God. He owns the world and all things in it and the creation of human beings is is his masterpiece. The human mind, the human body, the human soul, there's nothing like it in the universe. You can go to the the farthest star, the farthest galaxy and and you won't find a creation as marvelous as human beings. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we're so focused on the sinfulness of sin that we forget about the glory of God's creation in mankind. People aren't, bad sin is bad people are good and god created mankind good now get what i'm saying here i'm not saying people are morally good and that we're not sinful but what i'm saying is is that we have been created in the image and likeness of god and that that is something that is precious and valuable to god and he doesn't want to lose it and so he's willing to go to great lengths to recover what belongs to him and that's what he's done in the lord jesus christ god has gone to great lengths to seek and save that which was lost, which is his, and he doesn't want to let go. And so, she searches the house diligently until she finds it. Notice that same emphasis. We're not giving up. We're going to find this thing. I remember years ago, when I was young, I had non-disposable contact lenses. And those things were kind of expensive. One day, contact lens fell out of my eye, and it's somewhere on the carpet, and I'm on that carpet and I'm searching for that contact lens and you wouldn't believe how hard it is to find a contact lens when you don't know where it's dropped. But I would have didn't give up. I was going to look until I found it. And I did. And that's the way God's heart is towards seeking and saving the lost. He does not give up. He seeks diligently until he finds it. And when she finds that coin, she calls together her friends, same as the previous one, for a group joy. For a session of rejoicing together with friends and neighbors. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, when it says in verse 7 that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, This isn't teaching that there's some people who are sinners and there's some people who aren't sinners and the sinners need to repent, but the rest of us good people, we don't really need to repent. No, the parable here is condescending to human language and that Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees in a way that they can understand because they thought that they were people who didn't need repentance. They thought that they were good and righteous people. This is kind of like the Apostle Paul. Think about the Apostle Paul's testimony concerning his life. He said, when you examined my life according to the law, I was blameless, as he writes to the Philippians. And yet in another place, he says, I was the chief among sinners. Well, how can he be blameless according to the law and also be the chief among sinners? Well, that's looking at it from the human perspective versus looking at it from the divine perspective. From the human perspective, Paul was a righteous man living according to the law. And there's a lot of people in the world today, you can look at them and you say, well, well, there's a righteous person. He's made good choices. He's doing what's right. He's moral. He's honest. He's got integrity. But That doesn't mean that he's not a sinner. We're just saying that overall, his character in comparison with other people is, is that he's relatively good. But relatively good is not good in God's eyes. And so the righteous people who need no repentance... Don't spend too much time working that out theologically. It's just talking about the way things appear. This is phenomenological language. There are people who appear to not need any repentance. And for those who do appear like they need to repent, you need to get your life in order. Those are the people who he is referring to here in the parable because of the context. You've got the tax collectors and sinners versus the religious good people. Okay, And so here... Jesus Christ is inviting the religious good people to rejoice when someone who has made all the wrong choices makes the right choice to return to God. That's the main point. And that's what you want to do with parables. You want to get the main point and not make theology out of it that is not the main point. So don't get tripped up on the persons who need no repentance because the scripture is abundantly clear on the sinfulness of all. In Romans as we've already talked about. Now coming down then to the main parable there in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. This one is the longest, this one is the most powerful, this one really drives the point home and has the greatest application at the end of it. It's one of the most beloved passages in all of the gospels for good reason. And so we're going to focus our attention on this one this morning with those others kind of just as the introduction. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 11 through 24, and then we're going to save the end of the parable, the application, for later, later this morning. All right, so verse 11. He said, There was a man who had two sons, and the youngest of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So just like the previous parables, there's a group celebration when what is lost is found. And Jesus, he wants all of the Israelites scribes and Pharisees, self-righteous as they are, he's inviting them to share in the celebration, to recognize what is happening here. That Jesus has come into the world to seek and save the lost, and the lost are being sought and they're being saved, and that those who profess to love God and profess to do God's will, they should be rejoicing in this. That we as a church, who are good citizens, upstanding people, That if God starts to work in the lives of people who have made terrible choices in their life, and and they have been hateful towards Christians, and they have been immoral in their life, and they've even stooped to hideous sins that are despicable, that if God should call them and awaken them and, and show them who He is, and His grace in Jesus Christ, that we wouldn't say, well, it's not really the kind of person I was hoping God was going to bring to church. I was kind of hoping for, you know, good people. God doesn't need to bring good people to church. He needs to bring the bad people to church to become good. And that's, that's the work of redemption. That's the work of salvation. And we want to see baptisms. We want to see regeneration. We want to see people turned around. We want to see lives changed. We're not just going to people who are good and saying, hey, you're a good person. Why, why don't you become a Christian and come to my church? I like you. No. No. You go to the prisons. You go to the crazy leftists. You go to people who hate Jesus and hate the Bible, and, and you share the love of Christ with humility. You share the good news. You let people know who think that they've ruined their life and there's no future for them, that God can change all of that, and that they can be everything that God created them to be. They can have a new start, they can have a new beginning, they can be born again. That's what we're preaching here. Be born again. It's not over. Now I hope that you young people don't make a mess of your life. I hope you do make right choices, but it would be a tragedy if, if you made right choices and lived a good life and became self-righteous and didn't understand the gospel, and you died in your self-righteousness like, like these people that Jesus is trying to reach here and. You lived a good life and people looked at you as if you were on God's team but in the end you show up and and God says, I never knew you. There's no one so good that they don't need God's grace. And there's no one so bad that God's grace can't reach them. That's the message of the church down through the ages and it's the message that stands today. And we need reminders of it. So let's take a look here and a little bit of the details concerning this lost son. He's the younger son. He asks for his share of the inheritance, and for some reason, for the sake of the story, the father gives it to him. And he takes everything and he goes into a far off place and he squanders it. That's why he's called the prodigal son. The word prodigal, it means someone who is characterized by wasteful spending, who's reckless in his expenditures. Someone who thinks that they've got enough money to last forever and they can spend it however they want and the good times are never going to end. That's the mindset here. That's the prodigal son. His wealth had cost him nothing to attain and so he squanders it as easily as he had acquired it. He ends up being a pig feeder, which is a degrading job for anyone, but it's an abomination for a Jewish person, and this is in a Jewish context. And he longs to eat the pods that the pigs are eating, which are the pods of the carob tree, which are not really digestible by human beings anyway. And he's so hungry, he's willing to eat non-human food. The depths to which sin brings us is powerfully portrayed. By the words of the wise teacher, Jesus Christ here, he is brought low in his folly before he comes to himself. And so we as Christians, we have to be on the lookout for those who have brought themselves low in their folly and who have come to the end of themselves. And those are the people who are most responsive to the Lord Jesus Christ and the message that we have. The righteous, the people who think they've got it all together, they don't see their need for Jesus. You can preach to them all day long and and they're just hard-hearted. Not that God doesn't save some of those, but most of those that God saves are those who have come to the end of themselves. And so look for those folks. Have compassion, have pity, have grace. Now what kind of reception do you think the son was expecting when he came back? You can get some idea into it by the words that he had prepared. He's not expecting to be welcomed back as a son. He's hoping that he can just be a hired man. He can be like a servant in his father's household. And not only that, but to be the son who is now the servant, well, that's lower than being a servant. All the other servants are going to despise you. Everyone's going to know who you are. Everyone's going to know about your mistakes and your past and your folly. Everyone's going to look down on you. But his situation was so desperate that he was willing to go back and be the laughingstock of the city because he had no other option. He had nothing else. So the desperation of this young man is evident in the parable. And so I want to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt desperate before God? Have you ever felt guilty before God? Have you ever felt helpless and shamed before God? I hope you have. Because that's where we all are, whether we realize it or not. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. You and God are buds and you've got nothing to be ashamed of, and God always likes you and approves of everything that you've done, you're not ready for the gospel. You don't understand the gospel, because you don't need good news. Everything's already good. But if if you feel desperate, if you feel weak, if you feel helpless, then the gospel is for you. It's good news. To you. I'd like to compare what Jesus teaches there in Luke with what he says a generation later to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Pick it up there in verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, you are pitiable, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. I counsel you. Jesus doesn't put people down because he likes to put people down. He calls us poor and pitiable and blind and naked and wretched so that we will come to him for what we need. He says, I advise you, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and to have salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, the parable of the lost son, it's an encouragement to the poor and the pitiable and the blind and the naked. It is. It is. And that's how it's mostly used. But that's really not Jesus' point in telling this story. It's there, but all of that is there for another reason. And that is the other brother. It's the other brother that is really the point of this parable. Come back with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. So the father, he runs, he hugs, he kisses, He clothes, he enriches, he sets free. That's what the ring and the robe and the shoes and all of that represent. And he celebrates with the fattened calf. And he gets everyone celebrating with him. Except for the older brother. Listen to what it says. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, working, right? And as he comes home from his day out in the field... He drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. What's going on? What's the party? I've been out working. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice that when the older brother was talking about the prodigal, he said, your son. But when the father talks about the prodigal, he says, your brother. And so Jesus points to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious people, and he says, you should rejoice. You should be glad that the tax collectors that the sinners they want to listen to the word of god that they want to come and and be restored to god isn't that what you want the whole time what are you upset about what are you angry about what are you complaining about this is not a cause for jealousy this is not a cause for anger this is a cause for celebration a cause for joy why didn't they rejoice why weren't they happy to see the tax collectors and the sinners eating with Jesus? Well, listen to the parable. What's the attitude of the brother? I have been faithful. I have served God. I have done what I was supposed to do. I made the tough choices. I made the sacrifices. I've done the right thing. Where's my party? Where's my celebration? And what is the response of the father? You have my reward. You have my blessing. The father had not been neglectful of praising the obedience and the faithfulness of the older brother, but he'd had it constantly. It wasn't a big celebration because it was every day. My wife and my kids have my love. They have my gratitude. They have my thanks every day. But this son, who was lost who was dead to his father. When he came back, it was a cause of celebration. You know, I didn't throw a party for finding my cell phone because I didn't lose my cell phone. I had it. But when I found my wallet, I was happy that I found my wallet and I was rejoicing. And it's what we lost that we regain. That's what we celebrate over. But if you haven't been lost and you haven't been regained, don't be upset that no one's throwing a party over you. Rejoice that you have the Father's love. Rejoice that you are resting in God. It's not about you. It's about Him. The Father's joy in seeking and saving the lost and entering into that joy and celebrating together with Him. Let's be like the Father Let's be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's rejoice in the salvation of the lost and let's imitate Jesus Christ in seeking and saving the lost. This is a day of salvation. This is a day of grace. This is a day where God is out into the world calling those who have ruined their lives to a new start, a new beginning. And we've got the only message that they can make that beginning and that new start with. No one else in the world has any hope. They offer hope, but it's an empty hope. There are people who try to sell some stuff, but it doesn't work. But we have the water of life that we can give freely without cost, and we can see lives transformed and changed.